Storyteller's Thread, a monthly podcast devoted to young adult literature and the art of storytelling. I'm your host, Sean Connors. On each episode, we invite an author for young adults to take us inside their work, and in doing so, to talk about their writing process, their inspiration for writing for young readers, and the general ins and outs of earning a living as a professional storyteller. So, whether you're a compulsive reader, an aspiring writer, a teacher or librarian, or simply a frustrated reader who's counting the hours until you get home and dive back into that novel that's waiting for you on your nightstand, this is the place for you. Hey, it's March 1st. Thanks for being here. If you're listening to this podcast from somewhere in the United States, then there's probably a good chance you were affected by the extreme cold and snow that blanketed much of the country two weeks ago. If that's the case, I hope things are beginning to return to normal for you. I wish I could tell you that I spent the week during which I was stuck at home catching up on reading, but the sad truth is I spent most of my time running faucets and flushing toilets in a desperate attempt to keep the pipes in my home from freezing. Fortunately, the power stayed on and I was able to avoid any damage, though I'm not particularly excited to see my heating and water bills when they show up later this month. So, on this 30th episode of the Storyteller's Thread, we're bringing together three topics that are of interest to me. Young adult literature, that of course goes without saying, literary adaptation, and fairy tales. To help deepen our knowledge of these topics, my guest this month is the best-selling author, Kaylin Bayron. A classically trained vocalist, Bayron grew up in Anchorage, Alaska, speaking of cold places, and later studied opera in college. Despite her love of musical theater and the possibilities for storytelling that the medium presents, she eventually found her way to writing fiction for teenagers. This past summer, in July 2020, Bayron published Cinderella is Dead a black, feminist, and queer retelling of the Cinderella story that set 200 years after the fabled princesses died and which imagines two black teenagers who fall in love and embark in a quest to destroy the patriarchy. Today, Bayron lives with her family in San Antonio, Texas, and having thawed out from the extreme cold that gripped the state, she sat down with me to talk about her motivation for adapting the Cinderella story, the importance of reimagining fairy tales in ways that reflect the diversity of our society, and why she's unlikely to watch Marvel's The Avengers Endgame movie anytime soon. So, Kaylin, you and I were supposed to talk a week ago, <laughs> but we were unable to do so given all the problems the extreme cold and snow caused for us in the central U.S., especially for you, though, in Texas. Yeah. With that in mind, I have to ask you, what in the heck was your experience for the past week <laughs> like? Did you lose your heat and water, or what happened? We did. We lost power for several oh, days. Man. We didn't have heat. We had running water most of the time, but um, we were on a, on a boil notice. So we had to boil everything. But if you don't have electricity, you can't use your stove. So to back up a little, so I'm from Alaska originally. And so I'm pretty used to snow and ice and 
dealing with the cold and things like that. But living here in San Antonio, it's just, you know, it's not that people don't know how to deal with that kind of stuff. It's just that the city is not set up to handle this kind of weather. And so we knew it was going to be bad. We didn't know it was going to be quite this bad. They started the rolling blackouts. And so we were going maybe, you know, two or three hours without electricity. And then it would come on for 20 minutes and we would quickly turn on the heat and try to plug in our phones. And I had like literally one movie downloaded on my laptop and I have kids. And so we were watching Avengers Endgame um, (laughs) on repeat, which is, you know, to add insult to injury. Um, I mean, it's a great movie. It's just, you know, I don't want to watch it 20 times in a row. So yeah, so it was like that. And then the electricity just went out altogether. In the middle of the night, it went out. It was about 2 a.m. And I kind of woke up and I was like, God, it's freezing in here. (laughs) And um, I think we got down to about 40 degrees inside the house. Wow. And so we were going into the car to keep warm and to charge our devices. And yeah, it was just a very kind of scary time. We made a we made a campfire in the backyard. We made a snowman. We tried to kind of make the best of it, but it just really was a a, a scary time. And I know that there were there's a lot of people who had it a lot worse. Some people didn't make it through. So, yeah, it's just it's been a it's been a scary time for us here in Texas. For people who are listening, we were fortunate here in Arkansas we had some of the rolling blackouts, but we didn't lose power. And, and to contextualize this for people who are listening, I woke up one morning at 9 o'clock in the morning. It was 13 degrees below zero. So being in a home, and, and these homes are not built for this kind of cold. So exactly. I can't imagine what you guys dealt with. Well, if there's an upside to all of this, and there really isn't, but to be, you know, be on the optimistic side, if there's an upside, as you mentioned, at least you're prepared for winter weather, having grown up in Anchorage, Alaska. Were you born in Alaska, or how the heck did you come to live there? <laughs> um, I, was, I was actually, I was born in Wichita, Kansas, but my family was military. So we ended up in Anchorage, and then we just stayed. So I moved to Anchorage. We were there from the time I was about three until, you know, many, many years later when I got married and moved away. So, yeah, so I grew up there. And in Alaska, it's, you know, you plug your car in and you, which I try to explain to someone here in preparation for this storm. And they looked at me like I was like I had two heads. I was like, yeah, plug your car in. They're like, wait, what? (laughs) You know, and I was like, oh, okay, let me let me tell you how that works. But the thing is, is like I realized, you know, a day or so into it that we don't even I didn't even really have any like cold weather gear. I didn't have snow pants. I had a pair of boots. Um, I didn't really have a heavy jacket. It just, I have not had a need for that in a while. And so, yeah, it just kind of made me, I'm glad that I, you know, had the opportunity to grow up in Alaska and have that background. But yeah, it was, it was definitely an experience. Did you go to college in Alaska? I did. I went to University of Alaska Anchorage. Oh, did you? Okay. And you studied opera in college. Is that right? I did. Yes. Was it your intention at the time to pursue a career in professional opera? Yeah, I so I I knew that I wanted to do music. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do musical theater, classical music, 
you know, maybe something a little more, uh, you know, mainstream, but I just, I, I was pretty sure I wanted to do something with music and, you know, being completely honest, like I still, I still do. And so it, yeah, it was kind of, it was, it was that dream that I had of kind of pursuing that. But I think that as time went on, I focused more on musical theater and that's still kind of where my heart is aside from writing, of course. Is it the storytelling aspect of musical theater or opera that appeals to you? Yes, it is. And I, and I think that, you know, it, it kind of seems like maybe those, those things aren't, you know, being, a, being an author and, and, and musical theater and classical music, maybe it seems like those things aren't connected, but they really, really are. It really is about storytelling. I wanted to be a storyteller for as long as I can remember. I just wasn't sure what medium mm. that was going to be or what path I was going to take to get there. So I still feel um, a pull to music and I still want to pursue that in some, in some way, but it's, it, you know, I'm not surprised at all that I ended up here writing books. <laughs> Do you feel like your experiences with musical theater prepared you in any way for writing fiction or are they completely uh, separate forms of storytelling? I definitely think it it helped because there's you know there there are similarities to to the type of fiction that I write and kind of a you know a three act structure you know a hero's journey those kinds of things that we see just kind of across the board in a lot of different creative fields um, they apply to writing novels you know the same way that they they apply to um, putting on a production so. So yeah, it was it was helpful, um, and I still am a very I'm a very visual person, and so I can kind of see when I'm writing it. Kind of it looks kind of like a play to me. Um, it looks like a musical theater production to me. That's how I see it, and so so yeah, it's it's there's definitely um, a connection there. How did you come to begin writing fiction? Is that something you were doing in college, or is it something that came later for you? Yeah, so I I wrote my first my first attempt at a novel. I was 19, and I was in school, and I was it was an assignment, but it was supposed to be a short, just a short story, and I wanted to try and see if I could turn it into something bigger, and I did, and it was terrible, but you know it kind of it taught me that I could finish the work, which is half the battle, no matter what stage of your a uh, writing journey you're in it's kind of like you have to finish the story before you can make it better or do anything about it so and then life kind of happened i was a young mom i had kids i kind of focused on that and then i came back to writing later in my mid 30s and i'm i wrote let's see i wrote 3 novels before i wrote cinderella is dead just to kind of see if I could do it and, and try to kind of hone my craft a little. And I think it paid off, but I, I definitely have always wanted to write. And I did a lot of writing that wasn't necessarily fiction. I did a lot of songwriting, a lot of poetry, that kind of thing throughout my life. So I'm curious, as somebody who, as I'm getting older, increasingly feels this need to either do something creative or just scrap the stream altogether. Hearing you say that you came back to writing seriously 
made a decision that you were going to commit to it seriously in your 30s. I'm curious, what prompted that decision for you? It was a combination of things. I think, you know, and this is just very honest, I, I think I got a little lost in being a mom and being a partner. I kind of, I think I kind of got lost. Um, and this was something, writing, music, those were, you know, those were things that I've loved since I was a kid. And, you know, they never left my mind, but they did get put on the back burner when it came to, you know, kind of making sure everyone around me was okay. And I think I got, I think I just got lost. Um, and I came back to it when I realized that it was okay for me to have something that was for me, which I think is sometimes a hard thing to admit when you have, you know, a family and you want to be, you know, a good parent and you want to be a good partner. And I, I think it, it was hard for me to kind of say, well, I want to do this thing. I have this, this goal and it's going to require me to take some, some me time. <laughs> you know, I have to kind of go in a room and write a book. And once I decided that that was something I really needed to do to be okay, it was, it was easy for me to kind of make that shift, but I had to come to that realization first. And that was, that was a hard thing to do. I know a lot of times, especially in publishing, we focus on, or there tends to be kind of a focus on people who get book deals really young and, you know, they're, you're 20 years old and you've got a, you know, you've got a two book deal and it's a bit, you know, and that's great. And I, and I have author friends who are, you know, young, my daughter, my oldest daughter is 21. And so I know several authors who are her exact age. And it's kind of like, you know, I love that for them. But I also, you know, I want other people to know that if this is a, a goal of yours, a dream of yours, that it's never too late to go after it. Was there fear for you? Like, did you experience that? I just, I don't know if I can do this. Yeah, there was fear. But, you know, it was, it was, I knew that this wasn't going to be something that I could make my living off of right away and maybe not ever. There's never, you know, there's no promises in, in publishing, like, you know, and there's, there's issues with fair pay and, and you never know, you just never know what's going to happen. It's not like you get paid every two weeks and you can count on it. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of a crapshoot. So there was fear there about kind of jumping in with both feet and, really committing to it. But I had a very supportive partner and I managed to, you know, I was working, I was a preschool teacher for 10 years. So I, I was still working and kind of pursuing this dream, you know, at night and early mornings and weekends. And so there, there was definitely fear of, of just, you know, can I do this all the way? And I, I think that when I finally made the jump and quit my job, it was kind of like, okay, well, I don't have a choice now. I have to, <laughs> you know, it's like sink or swim. You gotta, you have to, you have to make it work. And so, yeah, there was definitely fear, but I, I tried really hard to, to pursue it anyway. And did you know from the outset that you wanted to write fiction for teenagers? Yes. Did you? What appeals to you about that audience? I think it's a, I think it's a combination of things. I think it's that for me as a, when I was younger and I was um, just an avid reader, I didn't have a lot of choices when it came to YA. So I read, I wasn't, I didn't have any restrictions on what I was allowed to read. So I read, you know, a lot of Stephen King, a lot of Anne Rice when I was 
you know, 12, 13, 14. Yeah, I was, I definitely should not have read it when I was 12, but you know, <laughs> hey. Um, so yeah, so I, I, I didn't have a whole lot of options. And I, when I decided, okay, I'm going to write books when I was trying to, you know, pin down what I wanted to do, it just always, there was just never any other question that it would be for young adults or middle grade, just children's literature, just because I feel like, I feel like young readers deserve so much. And, you know, I had a lot of options when I was reading adult fiction. I didn't really have those same options when I was looking at children's literature. And so I just, I was like, okay, I, I know that I, you know, what kind of story would I have wanted to read when I was 15 or 16 or 17? And I tried to really focus on that and write stories that spoke, you know, to that younger version of myself. So you published your first novel for teenagers, Cinderella's Dad, this past year. Would you mind giving listeners who haven't read it a sense of what the story is about? Yeah. So Cinderella is Dead is a YA fantasy, and it is the story of 16-year-old Sophia Grimmins. She is a young woman living in the former kingdom of Cinderella. It's the place where Cinderella lived and died about 200 years before. And Cinderella's story has become the backbone of this society. And the young women that live there are expected to model their lives after the, the fabled princess. And Sophia essentially is having none of it. She's in love with her best friend. And she does not want to go up to the ball, which is now a mandatory event. And it's a three strikes and you're out type of thing. Um, you have three chances to go up to the ball and find a match. And if you don't, your life is forfeit. So Sophia is required to attend the ball and she goes up there and she makes some choices that put her on a collision course with the ruler of this kingdom. And she uncovers some really devastating truths about, about this kingdom, about its ruler and about Cinderella. And it really at its heart, it's a story about telling young women that they are enough just as they are. What led you to write a fairy tale adaptation? So I, I have always loved fairy tales. Ever since I was a kid, um, one of the first books that I owned was a collection of fairy tales from different it was it was like Cinderella, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, all of those stories, but it was they were different versions of those stories from different cultures around the world. And I also, you know, coming up in the 80s and 90s, you know, it was that peak Disney princess time. Mm -hmm. And so that was, you know, that was in all of the media that I was consuming and the thing the thing about those fairy tales is that they are very white and straight and cis. There's not a lot of inclusion in those stories. And so I loved them as a kid, but I just never saw anybody who looked like me. I never, you know, I never saw anybody even as a background character who looked like me. And so it was, and I think, you know, we had Princess Tiana, but I was, I was almost 30 by the time that Princess Tiana with the Princess and the Frog came out. So I knew that I wanted to do a fairy tale and I wanted to do a fairy tale that was widely recognized and Cinderella, you know, even if you've never 
sat down to read the book or seen the Disney movie, I feel like we all kind of know the Cinderella story. And so I wanted to take something that was really recognizable and make it more accessible while also, you know, deconstructing some of the the very problematic themes that kind of run through that story. And I, I think that fairy tales, deconstructed fairy tales are, they're just my favorite. Like I love, I love Wicked. That's probably my favorite one of all. And it, you know, I love stories that kind of make you look at the, the earlier versions and, and just know that there's something else behind the scene. So that's, that's kind of why I chose that story. I want to pick up on the point that you made about the ways in which fairy tales are problematic. I was thinking of you in our conversation over the weekend, and I went back to a book I'd read called Letting Stories Breathe, a socio-narratology, and it's by a scholar named Arthur Frank, who is a professor of sociology at the University of Calgary. And there's a passage in the book that I'd like to share with you, because I think it's relevant to our conversation and it touches on a few things that you just alluded to. In the book, Frank argues, and I'm going to quote him here, Stories work with people, for people, and always stories work on people, affecting what we're able to see as real, as possible, and as worth doing or best avoided. I'm curious, to what extent do you think Frank's argument applies to seemingly simple stories like fairy tales? Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a really good question. So I, so there's a few different ways that I look at this. One of the things, one of the things is that being a preschool teacher, I was able to kind of see firsthand how a story, so Cinderella is, you know, it's a fairy tale. It's something that we definitely played like on a movie in our classroom a couple times. You know, it's, it's very, we had books that had Cinderella on it, but we had a dress up area in my preschool classroom and we had Cinderella's costume in there. And one of the little girls, um, and we're talking four-year-olds here, one of the little girls told another girl in my classroom, a black girl, that she could not dress up as Cinderella because Cinderella didn't look like her. She didn't look like Cinderella. It wasn't for her. So I think that what happens is when you have these stories that are, you know, are, are written one way and they have all the princesses are white girls. And I think what, what it says is that this story is not for you and it is for someone else. And there's no other explanation given. And it's not really, I don't think it's explicit. I think it's, it's much more insidious than that. And I feel like when you are a kid and you are, you know, like me, I was just, a little black girl looking at these things that everybody else loved and wanting to love them myself. And I think I did, but knowing, feeling that it wasn't for me. And so, you know, I think that that's, that's kind of how I approached this story in the, you know, ultimately these fairy tales are not written with people like me in mind. And it seems you know, it seems like, oh, it's a fairy tale. It's really not that serious. But the thing is, it, it is that serious. Um, we need windows. We need mirrors. We need sliding glass doors, as Dr. Redeem Sims Bishop says. And it's important to have that representation so that you can 
explore what's possible so that you can kind of see that there are other paths and other options for you. And, you know, what happens when you don't have that? So I, you know, I, I just think that these stories have the ability to kind of other us further. And it's important to, to kind of, to diversify them. I think there's room for many different kinds of stories and we can tell Cinderella a million different ways. And it doesn't always have to be centered on princesses who look the same. It doesn't have to be the same narrative over and over and over again. And I, you know, I've seen how detrimental that is to girls like me. And so I just, you know, I think that we have a responsibility to address it and to, to do something about it. I'm thinking about how you described it as particularly insidious. And I think that's true because especially in the case of fairy tales, they're stories we experience when we're small and vulnerable and not really equipped to think about them in more critical ways. And it's also, it's a double-edged sword too, because even as we get older, we have such a nostalgic sense of these stories because we experienced them in our childhood that I think in some ways predisposes us to be less critical of them than we might otherwise be. Yeah, I agree. And I, I have, you know, and the thing for me is that I, I have that nostalgia too. Like I, I, I really did truly love those stories, but it never, I can never separate it from the other feeling that I had, which is that this isn't, this isn't for me. And so those two things are always connected in my mind um, when it comes to fairy tales. As somebody who's interested in myself in literary adaptation, I'd like to talk with you about how you approached the process of adapting the Cinderella story. Where did that work begin for you? Or maybe another question I could ask is, where does a story begin for you? With characters or with a question or topic that you want to explore? Um, I think, so I think it's a, it's a, for me, it's a lot about the, the, the world building I think for me, that comes first. I have kind of an overall idea of, of what kind of world I want to create. And then almost simultaneously, I have, you know, questions about, well, who's the best person to kind of lead us through, but not, you know, it has to be someone for me, it has to be someone that doesn't quite check all the boxes, someone that doesn't fit completely into whatever this society has established is the, is the mainstream, because I think in order to kind of deconstruct societal norms and, and the things that I was deconstructing in, in Cinderella is dead. It had to be someone who was, who was not, you know, who was not at the center, but, but at the same time, someone who was at the center of their own world. Um, you know, how do you navigate a society that tells you, you know, the very essence of who you are is wrong. And so the world building is, is a big piece of it for me. That usually, that's usually the very first thing that I, that I think about. And when it comes to Cinderella's dead, I just, I'm, I feel like fairy tales are pretty focused on, on kind of a, a very small part of the story. So, and, and if we kind of zoom out and look to the left and to the right, we see, you know, well, what happened before and what happened after? By the time we come into the story, the villains are already established, the good guys are already established, 
We know who needs help. We know who's going to get in the way. We have all of these things established already. And I have questions about everything else. That's just kind of the way my brain works. It's like, well, what happened before? Why are these people like that? And then what happened after? Is it just we ride off into the sunset and everything's good to go? For me, the question of what happened after when we're talking about Cinderella was the most, was one of the most compelling things um, because I felt like there was so many unanswered questions at the end of that story. I wanted to kind of see what would happen in a society where you have this story that is essentially taken as, as gospel. How, how would that influence the people that lived in this, in this society? And, you know, would they still try to carry on these traditions that we see in this story? And I, it was just a very fascinating kind of angle for me. And I didn't want to do a retelling that was just a black Cinderella. I didn't want to hit those familiar story beats, but I wanted to have things in the story that you could point to and say, oh, you know, I recognize that. So we have, you know, some familiar characters, familiar places, but I think it's really about looking at it from another angle to kind of get the story behind the story. Did you spend much time looking at Cinderella adaptations in advance of writing your own book? I did. I tried to, I tried to kind of look at these stories because there are so many variations of this particular story and they span, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. I really, when I, when I went back to kind of do my research on the Cinderella story, the thing I wanted to see is what, what stuck, you know, we still have this story. We're still telling the story all these years later at, you know, why? Um, and I wanted to, to kind of look at why, you know, why, what was it that was so compelling about this particular fairy tale and what kinds of things didn't really change throughout the narrative and its different incarnations. And I think the thing that stuck out to me the most is that in almost every version of this story, you have these villainous women who, who are awful to, to the Cinderella character. And I think only in one or two other adaptations is it a little boy who's at the center of the story. Most of them are, are young women. And they are almost always just terribly neglected and abused by the women in their life. And that, to me, stuck out because I'm fascinated by stories of villainous women because I, I find that when you kind of peel back the layers, you really have to ask who's telling the story. You know, when you hear a story about, you know, a villainous woman, I, I, I would encourage people to, to ask who's telling the story. And so that, that stuck with me, and that was something that I wanted to explore in Cinderella's bed. Oh my gosh, you're giving me so <laughs> there's so much I want to talk about because I'm thinking I'd never thought of this until you just said that. But I've read several books by Jack Zipes. If you don't know his work, he's a fairy tale scholar. But I've read several of his books on fairy tales and he talks about how in preprint oral culture, it's largely women who are telling fairy tales. But then later that changes as they begin to be set down in print, it's men who are telling the stories. So take, for example, the Cinderella story, right? Mm -hmm. In the 18th century, Charles Perrault, the French writer, sets the story down in print. Later in the 19th century, the brothers Grimm begin to take oral tellings of Cinderella that have been shared with them, and they commit them 
to print. And I'm just wondering how, if at all, the gender dynamic, the representations of women in these stories changes as control over the narrative shifts from women to men. Mm-hmm. But I'm also thinking about a comment you made about the longevity of Cinderella. Mm-hmm. I co-direct an institute for teachers at the University of Arkansas that's sponsored by the National Endowment for Humanities. I co-direct it with a colleague here, Lizette Swicky, and it focuses on literary adaptation. And Cinderella is one of the two case study texts that we look at. The other is Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And as a result, I've read and watched more adaptations of the Cinderella story than I ever thought I would or ever hoped to. <laughs> and, and we didn't choose it. We sort of backed into Cinderella, but it's becoming of, of interest to me. What is it about this story, do you think, that accounts for its staying power? Because as you said, like, if people don't know this, it's a remarkably old story that exists across cultures. Yeah, I, you know... Storytelling has has so many different functions, and I think that with Cinderella in particular, I think that right now, I think that it serves to to do a couple different things. I think that, and I don't think that it's by, I don't think that it's always by design, but I think that, you know, as it's been told and retold, that what ends up happening is we have this very popular story that kind of, it shines a light on who gets to have a happily ever after and what you have to do to get there. Um, I think that it specifically shows stepmothers, stepsisters kind of being awful to Cinderella to sow distrust between women and allow this kind of thought process to happen that says, well, if you you know, you do what you're told and you, you might be able to be saved by a knight in shining armor, you know, Prince Charming, and then you get to ride off into the sunset. I think that it's the message there is that you need to be saved. And I think that, you know, as we retell this story, I think a lot of times we see, we see a kind of feminist retelling of Cinderella. Um, I've seen several especially film adaptations where Cinderella has more agency and she's kind of allowed to make other decisions, but she always ends up with Prince Charming in the end. And so I think that it, you know, the story itself, again, it's kind of insidious. It kind of, you know, implies that you need to be saved and that your best chance at having a happily ever after is to end up with a Prince Charming. And I just think that that, that, way of thinking just does not apply to so many people. You know, it completely ignores um, and excludes the LGBTQ community. And I think that because most of these adaptations, again, do not have Black, Indigenous, people of color anywhere in sight, sometimes it just feels like you only get the happily ever after if you look this way, if your sexuality is in line, you know, with this kind of heteronormative idea of of, you know, a relationship. And I, I just think that there's so many messages there that just don't line up with a lot of people. And so I don't know if the story continues to be used to kind of press that point in to kind of further that idea. But I, I think that it's, it's important to, to continue to tell the story. But I think that kind of like what I tried to do with Cinderella is Dead 
is to show that there are other reasons and, you know, why people do the things that they do. And there are other options. If we're going to tell these stories, it's okay to kind of adapt them and update them and make them more relevant to what's happening in the world right now and to communities who maybe have felt excluded this whole time. I want to come back to something you said earlier. You mentioned that you did look at several adaptations of Cinderella. As you were writing your book, are there particular versions of the fairy tale that you found yourself drawing on more heavily than others? I think that so so many of the versions of Cinderella don't include the kind of elements that like they don't include a fairy godmother, they don't include uh, glass slippers, these these kind of things that we think of as tent poles of the story. They're not even included um, in, in many, many of the other versions of this story. So I, I think that for Cinderella's Dead, I try to kind of take, I think that the French version is the one that the Disney adaptation leans most heavily on. And so I think that's the one that I tried to kind of put in the background of this story, just because I know that that's probably the one that my readers would be familiar with. But there are also some odes to other versions. You know, Cinderella's Dead includes a kind of a magical tree. And, you know, that's kind of a, a callback to that, and which is a different version. That's the Brothers Grimm, right? Yeah, that's the Grimm version. Like 1812 version, yeah. Yes. And so I tried to kind of create something new while also giving a nod to those other versions. But I think that the Disney version is so, is probably what most of my readers recognize. And so that's the one that I kind of used as a, as a framework with little nods to some other versions. You talked about diversifying your retelling of Cinderella. And I was thinking as I was reading the book, it has to be somewhat intimidating to take a story that has been told and adapted countless times and put your own unique touch on it. Are there other ways in which you understood yourself to have gone about trying to do that? Yeah, you know, and it is, it was scary. I was worried that people would say, oh, we've seen, you know, we've seen 50 versions of this Cinderella. I don't really want to give it a chance. So the first thing I think I tried to do was I tried to make the title something that if you saw it, and even if you knew it was Cinderella, you might pick it up. And I think that the Cinderella is Dead title does that. I also think that it speaks to, in my mind, what I'm trying to do in the story, which is that this Cinderella story that we've all been told is dead and gone. It's not, it's not relevant to what we're doing right at this moment. However, we can still kind of look at the issues that are presented there and make something else of them. But it, it was, it was scary. Um, you know, I was, when I was querying this story, I was told that fairy tales were just done to death and that the market was oversaturated, but I had never, I hadn't seen up to that point, I hadn't seen many that featured black girls in the lead and none, well, not, not enough that featured queer black girls in the lead. And so it was kind of like, okay, well, who is it? Who is it overdone for? You know, that's a whole nother question. So I think that just for me, it was about, you know, trying to find another way into the story. And so I, I wanted, you know, I wanted to place 
queer black girls at the center. I wanted to show how this story, the Cinderella story affected them and the people around them. And what does it mean when you, you know, what does it mean when you know who you are and what you want, but everyone around you is telling you that you can't have it and that you have to do something else. You know, how do you, how do fairy tales kind of push that on young women? So, yeah, so I, you know, I, I think that for me, it was just about kind of finding another way in and, and trying to kind of get past the fear that this had been done before, because I really felt everybody who writes a book is like, oh, no, but I, nobody's ever written anything like this before. But I really just felt like it was different enough. And it includes so much of myself, my personal experiences and feelings, especially with Sophia, my main character. So you know, there, there was definitely some, some fear there about what people would think, what people would say, but I, you know, ultimately it just came down to me really. I just, I needed to write this story. I needed to tell it and I needed to deconstruct this Cinderella story in this way. And, and I, I think that I, you know, I tried to do that as best I could. And I, I'm really proud of this, this work and this story. Okay, that's actually a perfect stepping off point for my next question. I first learned about Cinderella is Dead when I served on a dissertation committee for a graduate student. Arena Redden is her name. And Arena was a creative writing major at La Trobe University in Australia and also an aspiring young adult author. And in her dissertation, or at least the first half of it, she wrote an original piece of fiction and then in the critical component of the dissertation, Arena examined a pattern that she recognized in books for teenagers that depict what she called girl warriors. And specifically, she noted that in these books, they'll often feature a Cinderella-like ball gown moment where the girl warrior is transformed. So as an example, think of the Hunger Games where Katniss is presented in this elaborate gown. Mm -hmm. And Arena argued that the inclusion of that scene can create tensions between a book's progressive gender ideologies and a tendency for the book to reproduce traditional femininity. And so I was thinking of Arena's argument and its relevance to Cinderella's Dead. And I think it's interesting that you chose to depict not just one, but two ball gown moments in your retelling, one toward the beginning of the story and then the other at the end. And so I'm curious, what motivated you to feature that scene twice? Yeah, um, and that was that was definitely a purposeful thing. So I think the first, I love this because I've not been asked this question and I've done so many interviews and podcasts and panels. I have not been asked this question and I've been waiting for it. So um, when we first, see Sophia at the seamstress's shop and she's getting fitted. She is being told what she's going to wear. She doesn't make any of the choices about, you know, the color of her dress or the cut or any of these things for herself. And I, I recognize that sometimes in young adult literature, we have these, we have these moments where the girls kind of cast aside their dresses and put on pants and, you know, tunics and they go and they, they go do what they have to do. And I don't always think it's necessary to 
to cast those things aside. I think for me, it's much more about the choice. And so for Sophia, when we see her in the traditional kind of blue Cinderella dress in the very beginning, it's something that she is being forced into. She doesn't have any say. She's uncomfortable. She's, you know, it's just not something that she would have chosen for herself. And she, you know, she says that. And then later on, after we kind of follow her through her trials and we get to the end where she's kind of gearing up for this confrontation, she makes a choice for herself and she asks for something specific and that's what she gets and it's it's her choice. And so she's able to do the things that she needs to do while she's wearing this second dress. And I think for me, it represents it represents a choice. And I think that we should be able to have girls in fiction who make the choices that are best for them, not necessarily what progressive thinking thinks that they should have. I think that the the goal of, of feminism, and in, in my case, of the goal of, you know, being a womanist, is the choices that young women get to make. And so it was it was intentional, and it was something that I that I really paid close attention to when I was crafting this story because I really wanted to show that you can make the choices that are best for you. And if that means that you want to wear a pretty dress, as long as you get to choose the dress and it's the thing that you want, I have no issue with that. And so I, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to have that in there. And um, so I'm, yeah, so I'm thrilled about this question because it really is symbolic of, of what it looks like when you don't have a choice and then what it looks like when you do. And I think it's night and day. That's really interesting. And I was going to say in her dissertation arena talks about some of the other ways in which you do, and you alluded to some of them right against the ball gown moment in the Cinderella story. Like she notes, for example, that in the traditional story, Cinderella's transformation is almost instantaneous and really pleasurable. And as you mentioned in your story, it's it's really not. It's like this group of women who are forcing her, you know, into this ball ground that she doesn't want and then transforming her. And then also like when she gets to the castle initially where Cinderella is totally willing to perform traditional femininity. Sophia's like spoiling for a fight. Yeah. <laughs> she's looking around at the guards and she's thinking like, oh, I would just like the cold cock yeah. that guy. So I, th- I think that's interesting, the different ways in which you did resist some of the conventions in those scenes. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, you know, I think sometimes we have, we, have, um, we have two types of characters. We have, you know, girls with a sword or a dagger who wear pants and are ready to fight. And then we have, on the other side, we have girls who are, you know, they are depicted as kind of embodying this more traditional femininity. And I just don't, I just do not agree with either of those choices, unless that is something that the character, you know, is choosing for themselves. I think if you want to wear a dress, you can. If you want to wear pants, you can. If you do something else, that that's okay, too. I really think it's about the agency of these characters more than the dress itself, because sometimes we will see in in storytelling, we will see, you know, the girls, like I was saying, kind of cast aside the dress and pick up a sword and I think that that's okay if that's her choice. But I think a lot of times it's like, well, you only have that one path. 
And you don't. There are other ways to go about, you know, to go about kind of telling this story about resistance and about women's empowerment. It's really about the choice and the agency that the characters have. That's such a good point. I'm thinking of female students that I work with in the context of a young adult literature class who will often point out the dichotomy you're describing. Either the female protagonist performs traditional femininity or she goes in a direction that's almost embracing masculinity. And it's like, those are the two poles. You know, there's nothing in between. So I really appreciate your answer. Once you do have a story in mind, do you plot it out or do you just dive into writing your way into the story? Oh, so I, when I wrote Cinderella's Dead, it was, I only wrote maybe a chapter at a time, just as far ahead as I could see. And when I got an idea of what was coming next, I would kind of write that down and then write the next chapter. And that's kind of how I went through. However, since then, I have become a plotter. I I really didn't see that coming, but I, it really has, I, I read, um, Save the Cat writes a novel and that was helpful to me. And so I came up with a new way of kind of putting my stories together and it's been extremely helpful for me. And I have, let's see, one, two, three, I've written three other novels in the past few years and it's been, it's been extremely helpful for me to plot. So I am a plotter all the way a planner. Um, you know, I need kind of a roadmap for what I'm doing. I try very hard not to make it too extremely detailed though, because it, it never fails that it goes off the rails, but I, I need some kind of scaffolding to kind of hang the other parts of the story on. Um, and it just, it's helpful for me with my, you know, productivity. I, I kind of need that now to, to keep going and know what I'm doing next. And, And so, yeah, so it's been helpful for me to have an outline. Do you write every day? No, no. I write, let's see. So since quarantine, so since COVID, so for the past year or so, so like I said, I have kids and I used to write in the daytime when they were at school, but I have not been alone in the past year. So I have had to kind of adapt. And so I find it much easier and less stressful for me now to kind of wait until weekends or nights when I kind of, you know, my kids are asleep and I have some kind of quiet. So yeah, so I'm not writing, I'm not writing every day. Sometimes I'll go, you know, two, three days between writing sessions. And then when I finish a manuscript, I try to take maybe, you know, a couple weeks where I don't write at all just to kind of reset before I dive into the next project. I'm impressed that you can write at night, truly. <laughs> Although that may not, is that by choice? Would you, if we weren't in quarantine with everybody home, would you write at night? I, you know, I don't think so. I don't think that this, this situation has made me, you know, have to do things that I never would have really considered before. I love sleep and I would love to be in bed <laughs> at a reasonable hour, but it's just not, I don't know, it's just not possible right now. So I'm like, if I'm up anyways, I might as well, you know, turn it into a writing session. Man, I admire that. I, I find if I write at night, 
like my mind just gets going so much that I fall asleep and half an hour after my sleep, I just feel like my mind churning and yeah. churning and I'm up for all night. <laughs> yeah. you know? So I'm impressed that you can pull it off. I saw that you have a second novel coming out this summer in June. Would you mind giving people who are listening a sense of what they can look forward to? Yeah, so I have a YA contemporary fantasy coming out June 29th. It's called This Poison Heart. It is, I like to say that it's Little Shop of Horrors meets The Secret Garden with some Hades town thrown in. Wow. It is, yeah, it's, it is all things kind of weird and wonderful. And it really has been just so much fun to, to write. And it is, it's a story of a young girl named Briseis, and she was born with a gift. She can kind of grow plants from tiny seeds to full bloom with a single touch. Think kind of black poison ivy. And she, when her recently deceased aunt wills her an estate in upstate New York, Bree and her parents leave Brooklyn for the summer to go check out the property and Brie is kind of hoping that some time in the sticks will allow her to kind of control her gift. But their new home is kind of sinister in ways that they didn't really think about. It comes with a very specific set of instructions. And inside is an old school apothecary. And on the grounds is a walled garden filled with the deadliest plants on the planet that can only be entered by people who share Brie's unique family lineage. So it is kind of an atmospheric, gothic-inspired uh, fantasy, and I just, I just love it so much. It's fun. It's creepy. It's a little scary. There's some Greek mythology thrown in there. It's just, it's all things weird and wonderful, and it comes out June 29th. Sounds amazing. And I've got to give you props for working Hades Town in there. You're <laughs> representing your musical theater background. Yeah. That, oh that's goodness. such an incredible musical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Kaylin, for taking time to talk to me. I, I saw you talk about your work at the Allen workshop this past fall, and I was like, oh my gosh, she's so thoughtful and can talk about her work in such thoughtful ways that I knew I wanted to talk to you. And I really appreciate your making time for me. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that, my friends, is a wrap for this month's show. I want to extend a heartfelt thank you to Kaylin for making time to talk with me, especially on the heels of what I know has been an incredibly trying time both for her and her family, as well as for people throughout Texas. As a reminder, you can find Kaylin's debut novel, Cinderella is Dead, at your local bookstore. And keep an eye out as well for her second book, this Poison Heart, which is scheduled to debut in late June. And last but not least, I want to thank you as well for supporting this podcast. In the dog-eat-dog -dog world of podcasting, the knowledge that there's an audience for this work has gone a long way in motivating me to continue producing this scrappy little upstart of a podcast. So thank you. I'll see you back here in April when we'll continue to talk about the craft of storytelling for young people. Until then, happy reading. Thank you.